Hello and welcome to Disastrous History. My name is Anthony, and I am the host of this wonderful mess of a show that will attempt to chronicle some of the biggest and most interesting disasters, messes, and all-around screw-ups that have happened throughout the centuries. Welcome back to another episode of Disastrous History. This week's episode is going to cover a disaster I've discussed many times before, but never actually fully covered, a dust explosion. This week we will cover the 2008 Georgia Sugar Refinery Explosion. So what exactly is a dust explosion? I've described it a couple times in the terms of if you take a pile of sawdust and light it on fire, it'll burn for a little bit, but not super efficiently. You take that same pile of sawdust and toss it in the air, then stick a lighter in it, you'll have a fireball and a fairly severely burnt hand. The reason this works is there is an extremely high surface area to mass ratio in dust. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, I used the example of a fire set on a couch. You set the fire in the middle of the couch cushion. The only available route for fire spread is to the sides, which means the fire will spread slowly as most of the heat flux is directed upward. There will be some spread to the side, but it will take longer. Most of the heat is being pushed away from the couch and away from all fuel sources. Now if you take that fire and you stick it in the corner of the couch next to the armrests, the fire will spread much faster because you have the surface area fuel of the armrest and the surface area fuel of the back of the couch to allow for the heat flux to impact other fuel sources igniting those. The surface area between those two fires is greatly different and the one with a high surface area burns much faster and much more efficiently than the other. The same logic can be applied to our sawdust example. The sawdust in the pile only has the sides of the pile as available surface area to burn. When you toss it in the air, you exponentially increase the available surface area for the flame front to propagate through, creating the significantly larger fire. Now this only explains the surface area part. Why can't you toss a bunch of blocks of wood in the air and get the same effect? The answer is the mass of those blocks. For everything that has ever existed, there is a certain amount of energy required to ignite that object. This amount of energy increases or decreases depending on the size and mass of the object. So if you take a bunch of one inch cubes of wood, toss them in the air, and then try to ignite them, you're just going to end up with a bunch of one inch cubes of wood on the ground, no cool fireball, and probably a headache. The ignition energy for those one inch cubes is significantly higher than a single piece of sawdust. The other factor is there is almost no heat loss to the material through conduction during a dust explosion because the particulates are so small. So when you go to ignite something like a piece of wood, you lose some heat into the actual material because of conduction. With dust, you don't have that loss because there's so low of a mass that there's nowhere for the heat to go but straight through it. So you don't lose that heat. That sawdust example is basically the simplest example of a dust explosion as we can get but it doesn't fully encapsulate the sheer destructive power of a dust explosion. When dust explosions occur in confined spaces, things get really bad. The confinement of the explosion doesn't allow for the pressures to dissipate in the air surrounding it, so you get a violent overpressure. This can literally blow buildings apart. I also want to impress that sometimes, dust explosions involve dust that isn't normally flammable. That includes today's dust explosion. Sugar does not burn well, but when dispersed in the atmosphere, well, it can be deadly. Now, dust doesn't just explode all willy-nilly. It has to have the proper mixture. There's a lower explosive limit and an upper explosive limit, just like a gas explosion. 
I'd love to tell you what those are for any material, but most of them are generally unknown or very, very hotly contested. So basically, if it explodes, it is within the explosive limit. If not, it's not in the limit. So, good luck. Alright, so with that out of the way, let's discuss the history of the Dixie Crystal Sugar Refinery in Georgia. This refinery was built in 1916 on a bit of land on the west bank of the Savannah River, just north of Savannah, Georgia, in Port Wentworth, Georgia. Originally owned by the Savannah Sugar Refining Corporation, they refined sugar from sugarcane. But let's get into the process of refining sugar from sugarcane real quick so we all know and have a basic understanding of how and why this disaster took place. First, sugarcane is harvested on farms into what is known as, surprise surprise, raw sugar. This raw sugar often has impurities and molasses in it, meaning it needs to be refined for use in most things. Once it gets to the factory, it is melted and turned into sugar syrup. This process removes most of the impurities. They then crystallize the sugar by spinning it around a giant centrifuge. After that, the sugar is dried in a rotary dryer and then cooled for several days in silos. It's then packaged and sold to retailers or to industrial bakers. So really, the part in the process that creates the dangerous dust accumulation is the packaging process. Packaging the sugar creates dust that can accumulate in various locations throughout the plant. Anyway, back to our history, now that we have a general basis of how sugar is refined. In 1997, the Dixie Crystal Sugar Refinery was purchased by Imperial Sugar Company based out of Sugarland, Texas. The refinery made regular granulated sugar, powdered sugar, some liquid sugar products, and some other kinds of sugar products like brown sugar and stuff like that. The year before the explosion, they produced 1.3 million tons of sugar. That is a lot of sugar. That was a real quick down and dirty background of the location, and it's much shorter than normal backgrounds, but by all accounts there wasn't really much notable history for this refinery. It was just there and people worked it for years. Entire families lived on the property owned by the refinery. It was basically a giant sugar town. Everyone who worked there knew each other and knew each other's family. It was a small town. Your children worked there, your father worked there, people moved there when it opened from Louisiana specifically to work there, and then those families continued to work in the refinery until the explosion in 2008. So what did this refinery actually look like? So once the sugar was refined, it was stored in three large silos. Each silo was 105 feet tall and 40 feet in diameter, and they stored a maximum of 5 million pounds of sugar at a time. So they could have 15 million pounds of sugar available in those silos if they were all full. There the sugar would sit before being moved to its destination within the plant for packaging. There were three different destinations for this refined sugar. The first was the bulk loading area. This is where bulk sugar was packed into trains and semis in order to transfer it to different industrial baker locations. So that's like your little Debbie's and stuff like that, places that use a bunch of sugar once they get giant train loads of sugar all at one time so that they can make a bunch of stuff to sell individually. The second location was the packing buildings. This is where the sugar was packed into small bags like what we buy at the grocery stores. Pretty self-explanatory. The final location was the powdered sugar production area where, surprise, they made it into powdered sugar. All of these locations were supplied sugar via different conveyor belts that were either regular conveyor belts 
screw conveyor belts or bucket conveyor belts. Screw conveyor belts are an enclosed tube with a helical screw inside that rotates the sugar around and through to the next area. Bucket conveyor belts are buckets attached to a conveyor belt that carries the sugar up and dumps it onto the next conveyor belt or container where it needs to go. All of these were enclosed but were not airtight, allowing for sugar and sugar dust to escape containment. This will be a common theme throughout this whole thing, so get used to hearing it. Now, as sugar entered the packaging area and the silo area, it was dropped into silo 3. From silo 3, it would then be transported to silos 1 and 2. So basically, silo 3 was where they dumped all the brand new sugar, and then as it needed to be moved to different areas, it would be pushed over to silo 1, silo 2, and then silo 1. Then, in order to transport sugar from silos 1 and 2 to where it needed to go, there was an 80-foot long, 2.5-foot wide steel conveyor belt. So imagine there's two silos, and directly underneath the openings of the silos is this massive conveyor belt. When the refinery and silo building were being built, this conveyor belt was open in a giant hallway. But they realized that the conveyor belt being opened allowed for contamination of the sugar as it traveled. So they put walls and a ceiling over the conveyor belt. This prevented contamination, but it then allowed for sugar dust to build up. Because again, on the conveyor belt, sugar would fall off, dust would fall off, and would begin to accumulate. This created a major hazard. You see, there was sugar and sugar dust building up beforehand, but the area it was in was so large that it didn't really matter because it would have taken so much dust to reach that explosive limit in the atmosphere in that tunnel. But once they enclosed it, it made it significantly lower for enough dust to be in the atmosphere to reach that explosive limit. And just for good measure, when they enclosed the conveyor belt, they did not install any dust removal system. Just put a box over it and called it good. Not a good decision. But I can see where they're coming from. Sugar doesn't super burn well. It'll melt, but it won't really burn all that great. Why would we need a dust removal system? That question would be answered right before 7.15pm, February 7th, 2008. As CEO John Schefter was walking through the refinery with some employees on a tour, since he was almost brand new to the job, they heard a loud boom that they described as a heavy roll of packing material dropped off a forklift. Their confusion would soon turn into terror as about five seconds later, a huge explosion blew them off their feet backwards. On security cameras outside the refinery, a massive bright fireball was seen shooting above the refinery. But this was just the beginning. The first explosion scene was just the first of many. The problem with dust explosions is they can create secondary explosions. So you get the first explosion and it causes a bunch of shaking and pressure and whatnot. And that overpressure wave begins to travel through the area. As it travels through, the pressure kicks up even more dust. This creates secondary explosions. And this is exactly what happened in Georgia. The first explosion, the primary explosion, occurred in the area of the steel conveyor belt below the silos. In the days before the explosion, workers had been trying to get sugar clumps that were partially blocking the flow of sugar out of silo 1 unstuck with long rods. Now if you remember, silo 1 drops onto the long conveyor belt, but silo 1 is second in order down that conveyor belt from silo 2. So. 
they got them unstuck from Silo 1. But the pieces of sugar clumps were small enough to fit through the silo holes, but too bigger than the end of the discharge chute down on the conveyor belt. This created a dam which would allow sugar that was coming down the conveyor belt from silo 2 to spill over the edges of the chute down into the area beside the conveyor belt within the confined space of the conveyor belt area. This spilling process likely created large amounts of dust. It also created an area of sugar buildup. As the conveyor belt continued to move through this area of sugar buildup, it would create even more sugar dust as it disturbed the sugar that had fallen off the conveyor belt. So, the first explosion occurred midway along the conveyor belt, approximately halfway down. The metal coverings over the conveyor belt were blown in two different directions from an area in the center of the conveyor belt. That's how they were able to determine where the original explosion took place. The pressure wave would then travel back towards the silos and terrifyingly out into the Bosch building and the South building. This is where all the workers were. The Bosch building was a four-story packing building located on the north side of the silos. It was a steel building with poured concrete floors. Basically what I'm saying is it was a sturdy building. About as sturdy as you can get in building material. Sugar would be moved from the conveyor belt to the fourth floor where it was screened to pull out any more impurities then dropped down to the third floor, which contained hoppers, that transported the sugar down to the actual packaging machines on the second floor. It would then be transferred to the next room over to be placed into pallets for shipment. The South Building was, predictably by name, south of the silos. The South Building was a four-story steel frame structure with brick walls and concrete floors. Again, super sturdy building, another packaging building. Granulated sugar was transported to the third floor, where it was fed into hoppers that fed down into the packaging equipment on the second floor. The fourth floor was where all the powdered sugar production was located. Granulated sugar and cornstarch would be mixed together and put into mills that would pulverize the mixture into the powdered sugar, which was then fed into hoppers on the third floor that then fed into the packaging on the second floor, just like the other building, just with an added step of pulverizing the sugar and cornstarch mixture. In these two buildings, sugar and sugar dust would often escape containment on the top floor and the second floor. Numerous reports by workers and inspections showed that literally tons, not joking, tons of sugar had to be cleaned up on a regular basis and sent back to be re-refined again. This means that there was ample sugar sitting in various locations and piled up all over the second, third, and fourth floors of the Bosch building and the South building. Now, there were dust handling systems connected to the packaging equipment in the Bosch building and the South building, but as per usual, they were poorly maintained, incorrectly installed, too small for what they actually needed, and or completely clogged with dust already. So they were, at best, minimal help. And the same goes for the South building. But technically, the South building was probably worse, because powdered sugar and cornstarch produce a ton of dust. One worker literally said he would have to squeegee a path to his workstation in the South Building because there was so much dust in the way all the time, every day. That is not good. These also had dust collectors, but as evidenced by the fact a worker has to literally snowplow his way to do his job, they clearly were not working properly. 
And in addition to all that, if workers needed to clean off the packaging machines because there was too much sugar buildup, they would use compressed air hoses to clean off the machines. What does blowing sugar with compressed air do? That's right, it creates more dust. So, after the first explosion occurred in the steel conveyor belt, the pressure wave traveled through the belt out into the Bosch building and South building. The force of this blast was so much that it broke the three-inch concrete floors in both buildings. This bucking of the concrete floors kicked up whatever sugar was on the ground. This caused more explosions. After that, the explosions caused by the floors breaking made more dust fall down from the ceiling area on the rafters and the lights and the overhead ducts. This created even more explosions and more fireballs. Anything not nailed down was launched all over the place. Furniture, equipment, walls, the floor, even people. Anyone who had exposed skin had it instantly burned from the superheated air as the first explosion front passed by them. And then they were likely burned again, and again, and again, as explosions continued to rock the plant as more and more accumulated sugar dust rained down from above, causing smaller, but no less deadly, dust explosions from the fires burning available combustibles below. Those available combustibles were sugar packing material, papers, people, pretty much anything that could burn at this point was burning. Explosions would travel through the screw conveyors all the way back to the actual refinery and the building there stored the bulk sugar causing fires there as well. For nearly 15 minutes, fireball after fireball after fireball erupted from the refinery. Inside the plant in the packing buildings was a living hell. The power was cut almost immediately after the first explosion. No lights, no nothing. Floors had been wrenched apart and had gaping holes in them. Walls had been shoved over. Furniture and equipment was on fire and tossed everywhere. It was dark and confusing and dusty. And there was always, always risk of another dust explosion. Or two. Or three. Or even four. Escape was going to be insanely difficult because of all these factors. But there were further issues with the escape. Number one... There were no fire alarms in the work areas, like visual or audio alarms. If there was an emergency, they would be notified by cell phone or radio. That's not good. There also were no evacuation drills ever performed at the refinery. They had evacuation routes posted in emergency exit signs, but when the explosions happened, all the power to actually see the routes of the emergency signs were gone. So not only did they have no visual clues as to where to evacuate to, they had no prior knowledge of how to evacuate either, and everything had been blown apart, so even if they did, it's likely that they had no idea where they were going. Once those explosions started, they were essentially all on their own. And just for added good measure, there was a sprinkler system installed to protect the floors from fire spread. Real quick tangent here, fire sprinklers are not there to extinguish fires. That is a very common misconception. They are there to contain fires to a single area to prevent spread or at least hinder it. They are not there for actually extinguishing the fire, and they, except in special cases, do not all go off at the same time. They contain what is called a frangible bulb or fusible link that either has a certain color liquid, if it is a frangible bulb, or is painted a certain color, if it's a fusible link, that will let you know what temperature the sprinkler activates at, the more you know. Anyway, they had a sprinkler system installed, but the piping system was broken during the primary explosion and did not activate at all. So they had a sprinkler system and it was just not working.
The emergency response to the explosion was extremely hampered for numerous reasons. First, there were fires burning pretty much everywhere in the buildings, which is always a bad start to a fire scene. With the broken sprinkler system, it also hampered water supply through the hydrants because it was leaking out through the sprinkler system. Luckily, they thought quickly and were able to get pump to pump water out of the Savannah River, which was literally just nearby. They had no good way of accessing the interior of the building to even search for survivors because everything was burning, and on top of that, the floors were heavily buckled, so walking on them would be a dangerous task in and of itself. There was even still risk of even more explosions. You see, one thing I haven't mentioned yet is there were two directions for that explosion wave to travel. One was into the packing buildings. The other way was back to the silos. Now, those silos were actively burning at the time. They were heavily damaged by the explosion, but they did not collapse. Had they collapsed, it is very likely that it would have caused a another massive dust explosion because all that sugar coming raining down on top of a fire that's already burning putting all that dust into the air you've got a well a really 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 big fireball and a really 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 even worse day so their arrival on scene was well we got basically no water we have fires burning throughout this entire refinery we don't know the layout of this refinery, and the layout has been changed because it has exploded. Uh, we have three giant silos full of sugar that has caused this explosion that may or may not be collapsing at the moment. We're not sure. It is completely unstable. We don't know where anyone is inside. Uh, and who knows when or if the explosions are going to stop. Eventually, the fire department decided to bring in some refinery workers to help with the rescue mission because they were unsure of the layout of the facility, which, who can blame them? It's a pretty good idea. In the end, it would only take 90 minutes to get all 36 injured workers who survived the blast transported off-site and no other injuries were reported the rest of the event. That is impressive for an event this size. 36 injuries is probably 36 ambulances, maybe 18 if you can transport more than one in an ambulance, but with burn victims like that, you probably don't want to. So to get them all off-site in 90 minutes, evacuated from the building, off-site in 90 minutes is a super impressive accomplishment. Most of the major fires were extinguished by the next day, but the three silos would continue to burn and smolder with molten sugar for the better part of seven days before they were being put out by a special helicopter water drop. The aftermath of the explosion was described by Red Cross worker Joyce Baker as walking into hell. She helped treat some men who had escaped, and all of them had third-degree burns. Some of their skin was just gone. Some of it was actively slipping and melting off. In total, there would be 36 injuries and 14 deaths. Four of those deaths were caused by falling debris, collapsing the floors they were standing on, trapping them inside the burning buildings. Four more of those deaths were from becoming trapped by the fire. Two of those were workers who had re-entered the structure, trying to save their co-workers, and perished as heroes. The final six deaths were all from burns suffered in the building and died later at the hospital. At least one of those workers was named Kelly Fields, and he was uninjured in the initial explosion, 
and had evacuated, but later re-entered the facility to try and save his co-workers before becoming trapped. He died a hero and belongs in the Disasters History Hall of Heroes. We know the origin of this explosion. The steel enclosed conveyor belt underneath the silos. That's been pretty well determined. The original cause of the explosion is still up for debate. So let's go into the list of competent ignition sources and then I'll tell you guys which one seems most likely in my opinion. In fire investigation, you define an area of origin and then look at competent ignition sources within that area of origin. If you find none, you expand your area of origin. The ignition source of a worker lighting a cigarette and igniting the dust cloud was evaluated. However, no workers were found anywhere near the area of origin and with how quickly that explosion would have occurred, they could not have relocated away from the area that fast. So an open flame was not a competent ignition source here. That one we're just going to throw out immediately. Within the conveyor belt area, we have basically three potentials. An electric spark, so something faulting or a switch being flipped that throws a spark, like you'll occasionally see with light switches. But with that one, the only surviving switches found in the area of origin were explosion-proof switches, meaning they were designed with no spark possible. So it's likely that we can rule this ignition source out because there were four total switches in the area and two of them were explosion-proof. It's more than likely the other two were also explosion-proof. So we can go ahead and say that is not a competent ignition source. The next potential ignition source we have is a hot surface ignition. This would likely be a bearing that became overheated during operation. Now, the minimum ignition temperature for airborne sugar dust hovers right between 680 and 790 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 360 degrees to 420 degrees Celsius for my listeners everywhere not America, and 630 degrees to 690 degrees Kelvin for that one guy who always wants it in Kelvin. Now that seems like a high temperature, but there are two factors that work to lower that minimum ignition temperature. Time in contact with the hot surface, and if a pile of sugar had begun to smolder next to the hot bearing. The contact with the bearing decreases the minimum ignition temperature as it begins to break down, and the smoldering sugar will release flammable gases that can also decrease the minimum ignition temperature because it makes it less pure, lowers the ignition temperature. So this is a competent ignition source. And finally, we have a spark created by friction. This one is unlikely, but technically possible. It takes metal rubbing on metal to move at about 30 feet per second to create an efficient spark. The conveyor belt was maybe moving at best about 5 feet per second. So it's highly unlikely unless it became jammed and suddenly jerked back into position, but it seems unlikely. So that leaves us with really only one fully competent ignition source an overheated bearing igniting the dust. But then who was at fault for this fire? Well, it turns out Imperial Sugar was at fault, the owners of the refinery. Shocking, I know. Who would think that an industrial disaster would be caused by the owners of that industry? Just straight up shocking. That has never happened in the history of disastrous history. It's scandalous. Anyway... So, Imperial Sugar had no evacuation drills, which means they basically had no plans. I realized they had some posted on the walls, but come on. 
how often does anyone actually look at that stuff, let alone read it and take it in as information? You have to make people actually do it for them to learn it. Just putting the evacuation route on the wall is not going to teach anyone anything about how to get out of the building if it is, in fact, you know, exploding around them. You have to have them do it. You can't be like, oh, just look at the wall. All the lights were out. It was basically evening time. It was too dark, and it was dusty, and everything was on fire. They need to have that in the back of their mind. They have to have that training in order to properly evacuate. You can't just be like, ah, look at the wall. No, no, no. You get entirely at fault for this one. They also had completely inadequate cleaning practices. It should not require a squeegee to get to your workstation. There should not be several inches deep piles of sugar all over the place. There should not be literally tons of sugar swept up and refined to be repackaged because it fell out of your packaging process. That should not be happening. You, your workers shouldn't need to have snow boots and trek through piles of sugar to get to their jobs. You need to have better housekeeping than that. Now, they did have dust collection systems, but they were essentially worthless. No maintenance, wrong size, wrong type, and basically they did nothing to do anything to make them work or check on them or just generally use them whatsoever. Basically, they built them because someone said they needed them and then that was the end of it. They allowed for dust accumulation to build up and put all their workers at risk. And it's not like they didn't know there were risks. There were numerous reports over the years of small fires breaking out because of overheated bearings numerous times. Nothing was changed to prevent them. The sugar industry has been aware of the risks of sugar dust explosions since at least 1925 when a study was put out indicating that sugar dust was readily ignitable and could cause explosions. Hell, on August 10, 1961, the refinery had a dust explosion in the powdered sugar mill room. It damaged the room and took a couple days to repair, but they knew it could happen. They literally had it in their files that the government looked at when they did their investigation. Despite knowing that sugar dust was hazardous in enclosed spaces, they still chose to enclose the conveyor belt in a steel box. This greatly decreased the amount of sugar dust needed to cause an explosion. And, I mean, they knew. They clearly knew it could cause an explosion. There had been an explosion at the refinery before. It was in their files. There have been other sugar dust explosions. This isn't a new thing. And they did it anyway. And on top of that, they had no explosion vents installed to help vent explosive energy to the outside of that steel box they enclosed their sugar conveyor belt in. They just let it be a box with no way. So even if there was an explosion, there wasn't anywhere for the explosive energy to go besides out into where all their workers were. And just so we know that they officially knew that dust explosions were a problem... They received OSHA's combustible dust program in 2007 and distributed it to workers, which highlighted all the issues that were at hand in the facility and yet still did absolutely nothing to alleviate any of the problems at all. They did absolutely nothing. Had they even done proper cleaning in the packaging rooms, the explosion would have been bad, 
but not as bad as the numerous secondary explosions that continuously rip through the facility, probably killing several people. There are, it's very likely that if they had done even the barest minimum of cleaning or trying to prevent the barest minimum of dust accumulation, they could have saved at least some of those lives because the explosion would not have had as much fuel to go through and to continue to propagate. It likely could have been contained to the at least one area of the packing rooms, packing buildings, if they had installed explosion vents in the steel containment in the inside the steel enclosure of the conveyor belt, it might not have been that bad at all. They might not have had any deaths. They might have had a couple injuries, but all of that explosive pressure would have gone through the explosion vents and it would have probably not gone anywhere. If they had just done at least the bare minimum of anything, this would have turned out incredibly different. But they didn't, because it costs money, as per usual. But it's not entirely fair to lay all of the blame on Imperial Sugar for the explosion. A good portion of it, yeah, but not all of it. In April of 2007, a risk management company, Zurich Services Corporation, literally came through and audited the Port Wentworth facility's risks. They notified them of numerous risks, but made absolutely zero mention of any sugar accumulation or sugar dust accumulation. There are literally photos showing that the sugar was there during the Zurich inspection, but absolutely no mention of it was made in their audit. They knew they're a risk management company. They better know about dust explosions. They better know about sugar dust explosions. If you're going to go to a sugar dust facility, you need to know that sugar dust can explode. But yet they made absolutely no mention of it, which is a gross oversight by a risk management company. That is embarrassing. So they get to hold some blame for this as well. In the aftermath of the explosion, Imperial Sugar made the decision to shut down their Louisiana plant for a week to clean it and make sure an explosion could not occur there as well, to their credit, I have to say. Imperial continued to pay all their workers and hired many of them to help with demolition and the rebuilding process of the Port Wentworth plant. The Department of Labor requested the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Georgia consider criminal prosecution against Imperial Sugar higher-ups, but that U.S. Attorney decided that there was insufficient evidence for criminal charges. Those charges would have been intentional disregard or plain indifference to the requirements of OSHA's general housekeeping standards. Which is con curious, considering, you know, everything that I just explained to you. His basis was that there was no felony provisions under the statute that cover housekeeping offenses, therefore he could not press charges. Which is an interesting decision to come to, but I am not a lawyer, I'm just going to question him for it. OSHA did issue 124 citations against Imperial, and fined them a total of $8.77 million. Imperial and OSHA settled for a fine of $6 million, and Imperial admitted no fault in the explosion. Which again, I would like to remind you, all of the things I listed earlier, clearly showing them at fault for this explosion. They just didn't officially admit fault, but uh, I think we can pretty well say that, yeah, they were at fault for this. 
Several survivors would sue Imperial in the years afterwards, but most of those settlements have been kept private. In the end, Imperial Sugar rebuilt the Port Whitworth Sugar Refinery and reopened it in November of 2009 with a monument in place to honor those who died in the explosion in a park on the refinery grounds. Many of those that worked in the refinery before the explosion continued to work in the refinery after it reopened. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Disastrous History. So history is H-S-T-R-Y without the vowels. You can also follow me on TikTok at Disastrous History, spelled correctly, and on Instagram at Disastrous History, also spelled correctly. If you want to email me and let me know, you can email me at DisastrousHistory at gmail.com. Unfortunately, podcasting is not free, so I have a coffee set up. It's kofi.com slash Disastrous History. It's there just as a donation. There's no content or anything hidden behind it, and there probably never will be. So it's just there if you want to donate. If you do, I greatly appreciate it. Anyway, as always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.